morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Thursday, March the 3rd, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. The U.S. has renewed its warning to civilian airlines flying in the Kenyan airspace to watch out for possible attacks by militant groups. We should be on the lookout as a country and let us use all our resources to ensure that our airspace is safe. That is Kenyan security analyst George Msmali. The International Atomic Energy Agency has called on the parties in the Russia-Ukraine conflict to ensure the safety and security of Ukraine's nuclear plants. We see that there's already a rise of level of radiation in Chernobyl because their troops are moving there and there's a threat, of course, of uh, Russian terrorist acts, basically. That is Ukraine's deputy environmental minister, Roman Shakmatenko. In Nigeria, women's rights groups are protesting, demanding for greater representation of women in the country's state and national parliaments. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, the American government has once again warned its citizens against civilian airlines flying in the Kenyan airspace. America says that its citizens should watch out for possible attacks by the Al-Shabaab militants. Advisory from the U.S. Federal Aviation Authority says that Al-Shabaab remains a threat in Kenya and continues to possess weapons capable of hitting aircraft at low altitudes of up to 25,000 feet, putting at risk arrival and departure phases of flights. Maureen Ojambo has more. For the second time this year, the U.S. government has issued an advisory to its citizens warning them to stay vigilant due to possible attack, especially on civilian airlines by the militia group Al-Shabaab. The U.S. Federal Aviation Authority says that the adversary is informed by assessment that the Somalia-based terrorist group is still a threat to Kenya. Furthermore, it remains in possession of weapons that can put at risk the arrival and departure of flights, especially on the popular aviation route through northeastern Kenya and Somalia. Security experts say this adversary could intensify anxiety for the tourism industry, which is starting to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. Security analyst George Msamali says Kenya should work to ensure that its airspace is safe. We should be on the lookout as a country and let us use all our resources to ensure that our airspace is safe. Because uh, if we have an attack like this, it's definitely going to affect a lot of uh, economic activity. Kenya being a hub uh, in the region, definitely it's going to make sure that people don't want to fly over our airspace. We should talk to our partners. And the partners should also be willing to share information with us. If it's credible intel, they should give us the specifics. The U.S. says the weapons could also target airports and aircraft on the ground. The air routes covered by the U.S. Federal Aviation Authority warning include those connecting Nairobi and Far Eastern countries like United Arab Emirates, India, and China, as well as those destinations serviced by major airlines. Planes plying the routes over past eastern Kenya counties such as Garissa and exit into neighboring Somalia, where Al-Shabaab seems to carry most of the attacks. 
Mr. Mali says most advisories come to pass and that Kenya has been a target for some time now. The U.S. has issued advisory uh, on its citizens without giving specifics about when and where the attack is supposed to be carried out. What I would say is that uh, we should take this advisory seriously because before, whenever this has happened, this has always, has always been followed up by an attack. And uh, this is an attack that has, uh, the Kenyan government and the security agencies have not been able to deal with. The African Union mission to Somalia, AMISOM, has played a crucial role in stabilizing Somalia for the past 14 years. And now it is set to transition to African Union transition mission to Somalia by the end of this month of March. Kenya says it will not pull out its defense forces from Somalia despite the end of AMISOM and will continue working under the African Union transition mission to Somalia. AMISOM's head of mission, Francisco Madeira, says... Until a clear roadmap for long-lasting security is established, stakeholders involved in helping Somalia recover peace and achieve reconciliation and development must remain focused. As you know, the security of this area is under the responsibility of Amazon, 100%. So with the government of Somalia, we have agreed on who should access this area weapons with arm, I mean, firearms or without. In principle, civilians are not supposed to be carrying weapons here. Al-Shabaab has declared its intentions to conduct attacks in revenge for Kenya's counter-terrorism operations in Somalia that Nairobi has been conducting since 2011 as part of African Union mission. Somali says Kenya went to Somalia with the goal of neutralizing Al-Shabaab and Kenya Defense Forces leaving Somalia may not stop Al-Shabaab from attacking the country. If Kenya has to leave Somalia, it means we are still facing the same uh, animal we went there to slay. And uh, as I see it, the reason why Al-Shabaab is still attacking Kenya is not the fact that Kenya went to Somalia. And even if KDF leaves Somalia, Al-Shabaab will still have a reason of uh, attacking Kenya. In Somalia, bringing in a new brigadier, Jatani Gula, who has pledged to work with the Somali National Army to carry out joint military operations. I am Moreno Jembo in Sacramento, California. The International Atomic Energy Agency has called on the parties in the Russia-Ukraine conflict to ensure the safety and security of Ukraine's nuclear plants. The director of the IAEA expressed concern about the plants Wednesday in remarks to a UN environmental conference in Kenya. Rud Elmadop reports for VOA. In the past week, the Russian army has taken control of several nuclear sites in Ukraine, including Chernobyl, site of the 1986 nuclear meltdown that released high amounts of radiation into the atmosphere. On Tuesday, Ukraine's Deputy Environment Minister Roman Shachmatenko addressed the UN Environmental Assembly from Kiev, speaking from what appeared to be a basement filled with people trying to escape Russian bombing. The audio was recorded from the live stream of the session. He warned that the nuclear safety of Europe is at stake. We see that there's already a rise of level of radiation in Chernobyl. Because their troops are moving there, and there's a threat, of course, of uh, Russian terrorist acts, basically. 
During a briefing Wednesday morning, an IAEA official confirmed there were higher radiation levels at Chernobyl just after the Russians took over the site, but said the readings have since gone down to normal, harmless levels. The IAEA, however, says it remains worried about Ukraine's nuclear plants. In a statement, Director General Rafael Mariano Grossi said any military or other action that could threaten the safety or security of Ukraine's nuclear power plants must be avoided. Grossi gave the statement from the IAEA Vienna office. Any such incident could have severe consequences, aggravating human suffering and causing environmental harm. This is the second time in a week that the Ukraine conflict has intruded on the environmental conference, which was called to discuss ways of containing plastic pollution around the world. On Monday, the European Union denounced Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russia said the government in Kiev was to blame for the conflict. Ruth Almendorf for VOA News, Nairobi. And let's go to West Africa in Burkina Faso, where the country's six-year conflict with terrorist groups has spread to the southwest of the country and is beginning to spill into neighboring countries. The conflict is also sparking accusations of human rights abuses, as Henry Wilkins reports from southwest Burkina Faso. Binta Sangare, whose name has been changed to protect her identity, says armed men entered her house one night in November, shouting and shining flashlights on her. She says they kidnapped her husband and disappeared into the night. She says just after the men left, she heard gunshots and that seven people were killed that night. Local people found the bodies of six and the last one a few days later. Her husband's body was among them and later buried. She says the men who took her husband away were Burkinabi security forces. At her husband's funeral, they came again and detained people from the Fulani ethnic group, she says. They came to kidnap and kill without cause or investigation. That makes us scared every day, she told VOA. Burkina Faso has been battling armed groups linked to Islamic State and Al-Qaeda for six years. In the last year, the conflict has spread south. Reports of extrajudicial killings by Bukhanabi forces, known as FDS, have increased. Rights groups say there is a common misconception that Fulanis are behind many of the terror attacks and say Fulanis make up the majority of victims of pro-government forces. VOA spoke with seven witnesses in the southwest municipality of Jigwe, who said relatives were abducted or killed by security forces in November. Some allege that government-backed civilian militia groups, or VDPs, have been involved in the deaths and disappearances. One witness, whose identity has also been protected, said the Dozos, a militia group, shot and killed his nephew. He says terror attacks have increased and security forces are relying on the Dozos to maintain security. He says the FDS are staying in their bases and letting the Dozos go out into the bush. At first, the FDS were accompanied by the Dozos and they were interrogating all ethnic groups. But since things are in the Dozos' hands, they are only interested in the Fulani, he added. One Burkinabi human rights group, the Collective Against Impunity and the Stigmatization of Communities, says 17 people were murdered in Jigwe in November. 
In a VOA interview, the group's founder called on leaders to act. He urges them to suspend the operations of the VDPs and the armed civilians, adding that the group strongly hopes leaders take into account the international respect of human rights and the sacredness of human life. Human Rights Watch says the FDS, which took power from a democratically elected government in January, has carried out many extrajudicial killings since the conflict began. To the best of my knowledge, no one, no uh, security force members have been held accountable for um, these very serious allegations of, of, um, of abuses in counterterrorism operations. The FDS did not respond to a request for comment. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Southwest, Burkina Faso. Women's rights groups protested in Nigeria's capital Wednesday to demand greater representation of women in the country's state and national parliaments. Lawmakers on Tuesday approved a bill that would set aside 20% of seats for women, a significant boost from current rates. But protesters say one-fifth of seats is not enough. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. Some 200 women barricaded the entrance of the Nigerian National Assembly, holding up posters and banners and singing songs in unison. The protesters, including market women, civil servants and various professionals, prevented lawmakers from entering their offices Wednesday. But the National Assembly passed a bill Wednesday to increase women's share of parliament seats at both the state and national levels to 20%. That's nearly triple the current rate of 7%. But the protesters say they were not satisfied with the outcome. They want 35% of seats to be allocated to women. Cynthia Mbamalu is an organizer of Wednesday's protest. We need new ideas, new minds, diverse views, which is what we're pushing for women. If you have women in government, there will be an assessment of policies and laws from both male and female lens. And you're looking at issues that affect women and children and young people from a diverse perspective. We cannot expect, cannot expect development or things to change if decisions are made by the same kinds of people. Hansa Adegbite, who heads the Women in Business Initiative, also took part in the protest. Women have to arise. Enough is enough. I'm appealing to every single woman in any sector. Arise and let our voices be heard. It is about all of us, and we are here to make over this nation once and for all. Nigeria's lawmakers began an exercise this week to review the country's national constitution of 1999. The majority of parliament members are men. Women's representation in Nigeria's parliament is among the lowest in the world, around 4%. Activists say patriarchy and cultural biases are some factors influencing women's low participation in government. Lawmakers responded to the protesters after hours of demonstrations. Deputy Chief Whip Sabi Abdullahi promised the protesters that their demands will be looked into. The conversation we are having now is a good step. And I want us to look at it as work in progress. And as we talk, we understand the issues. I'm sure we can get somewhere. Africa has seen an increase in the number of women in parliament, but a European research group The International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance says African countries are unlikely to reach the UN goal of gender parity in politics by 2030. 
Nigerian protesters said African countries like Senegal, Rwanda, South Africa, Tanzania and Botswana are getting ahead and getting more women involved in key economic and political positions. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. South Africa said this week the International Criminal Police Organization Interpol has requested countries to seek out and arrest Rajesh and Atul Gupta, two brothers and businessmen who allegedly bribed top officials, including former President Jacob Zuma, to gain lucrative government contracts. Ricky Stark reports from Cape Town in South Africa. South African anti-corruption activists have accused the Guptas of state capture, a term meant to describe the brothers' strong influence over former President Zuma and members of his cabinet, influence that allegedly extended to contracts, policy and personnel choices. While there are many allegations against the Guptas, the case the Red Notices, which are Interpol requests to member nations to arrest, involves is a relatively small $1.5 million pertaining to procurement fraud. South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority requested the red notices last year, but Rajesh and Atul Gupta's lawyers objected. The application therefore had to be reviewed by Interpol to make sure, among other things, that there was no political bias. Interpol's ambassador for the Turn Back Crime campaign, Andy Mashaile, says South Africa also took time to secure an extradition treaty with the United Arab Emirates, as it's believed the brothers are in Dubai. You can then go to Interpol Dubai and then say Interpol Dubai. We know this is the place where the guys are living. This is the street name and the street number. This is how they look. These are their images. Please help us get these people in your detention center or in your cell or in jail until we are able to fetch them from Dubai. Interpol has 194 member countries, and while red notices do not compel them to execute arrests, the notices do help in tracking the whereabouts of the suspects or fugitives. Their photographs are posted on all local law enforcement systems. Political analyst Sanusha Naidu of the Institute for Global Dialogue says the red notices could help in the 2024 re-election campaign of South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa because it shows he is taking action against corruption. But I think what it also suggests that at the international level, we're now getting the international community and in particular Interpol to also take a stance and align with the position that Ramaphosa has. So I think in terms of him moving forward and trying to say to the South African public, I'm doing what I have to do. I'm working around this. I'm moving the needle on this. However, Naidu says she's not sure it's enough to redeem the African National Congress, which has steadily been losing support at the polls because of rampant corruption and failure to deliver basic services. I think when you want to really talk about what ordinary South Africans want, is that they want to see the judicial system take its natural course. But the question is also, all the money that has been fleeced from the country, how does that come back? Because if you think about it, That's where part of the challenge lies. News of the red notices broke a day before the release of the third report from the inquiry into state capture. It called for the National Prosecuting Authority to investigate Zuma. The former president refused to appear before the inquiry and was sentenced to serve 15 months in jail after defying a court order to do so. He was, however, let out on medical parole after serving only a couple of months. Vicky Stark for VOA News, 
Cape Town, South Africa. Teachers in Cameroon are refusing to work, citing unpaid salaries, some dating back years. Government-led negotiations earlier this week failed to reach an agreement putting the education of hundreds of thousands of children on hold. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yawunde. Students at Government Bilingual High School Daydo in the city of Douala think that the government should pay their teachers so children have access to education. In the song, the children say their dreams of becoming government ministers, doctors, journalists and entrepreneurs will be shattered if the government fails to listen to teachers. Architect David Mulu has three children in the school. He says he visited the school on Wednesday to find out why teachers come to school but refuse to teach. Because of COVID, children have not been regular in school. If they continue losing because their teachers are on strike, the children's future is jeopardized. So my plea is that the government should look into their problem. Mulu said school attendance in Cameroon has not been regular since the Central African state reported its first cases of COVID-19 in March 2020. He said during the Africa Football Cup of Nations, which Cameroon hosted last month, the government interrupted classes so students could fill empty football stadiums. He said children have no time to waste if they are to prepare for this year's final examinations expected in May. Ten Cameroon Teachers Associations and Unions last week announced a strike against what they call the disrespect of teachers by the government. The teachers say the monthly salaries of primary school teachers should be increased from about $150 to at least $400. They are also asking the salaries of secondary school teachers to be increased from about $400 to at least $800. Valentine Tame, president of the Teachers Association of Cameroon, says his colleagues are particularly angry because the government has recruited more teachers than it can pay and now owes several years of unpaid salaries. At a certain moment, most professions stopped recruiting, but education continued to recruit teachers. And so there are so many, and uh, you have teachers who have gone for nine years, ten years without salaries. And uh, the government has kept promising and kept promising and promising. And what is most irksome is that those who have money go and give bribes, and they have their arrears, they have their salaries. The sides negotiated Tuesday, and the government promised to look into the teachers' grievances and pay the outstanding salaries of at least 17,000 teachers, though it did not say when. A statement from Fuda Serafai Magloa, Secretary General of the Prime Minister's Office, said the teachers agreed to suspend the strike. Geography instructor Apollinaire Zay, a spokesman for the disgruntled teachers, says the teachers agreed to no such thing. 
en allant à l'établissement suivant nos emplois de temps. They say all teachers should go to school, but should not teach. He says school children should be calm and understand that teachers are going through a very difficult time. They say teachers should be humble and courageous to ask intimidating police and government officials if the police and government officials can also work for so many years without being paid. The government denies that its officials and the police are trying to intimidate the teachers. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yawundi, Cameroon. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit us at voanews.com. You can also connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Twitter, Instagram. We are also on Facebook and on YouTube where you can watch our videos. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington wishing you a great week ahead, Africa.